Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Talk and Impact, brought to you by the Institute for Social Innovation and Impact at the University of Northampton. My name is Richard Hazenberg, and each episode I am joined by a leading social entrepreneur to discuss social innovation and leading topics from the day. Today I'm joined by Baron Victor Adebowali, CEO of Turning Point and Chair of SEUK. Good morning, Victor, and welcome to Talk and Impact. Thank you very much. Good morning to you and your listeners. Thank you. Morning all, in fact. (laughs) How are you this morning? I'm all right, actually. Well, I'm eating my breakfast and talking to you at the same time, which is... But um, I've got to have something to eat, otherwise I'll faint. But yeah, I'm good. As we were saying, you've got to get the blood sugar up, and I like it. It's multitasking in action. I'm afraid so. Sorry, listeners, for the sound of my boiled egg going down. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, we talked through um, everything we wanted to discuss in the podcast, but I mean, mm-hmm. so let, let's let's start off with, you know, you tell us what you see as social social innovation and social entrepreneurship, and how you think that fits mm. into the into the modern world. Well, innovation. Well, that's an interesting word. I mean, I mean, innovation in the sense that I see it, are people solving old problems with new ideas. Um, um, the, or you, you know, and the new idea doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a um, doesn't have to be a new idea. It can be an old idea applied differently. Um, but it is pretty. We live in a, an age where, in, without innovation, we where, well, the planet's quickly. So I see innovation as an essential prerequisite for positive change. Um, it can sometimes be used for negative change, but it's basically about change, um, alteration, but applying that is in new ways um, to solve old and new problems. That's that's right. I see it. Um, social innovation, did you say, or social entrepreneurship? I don't know quite. Well, well, both, because they actually sometimes two terms that get thrown around interchangeably. They do, but I'm not sure. They're not the same thing at all, actually. Um, and, um, and social entrepreneurship is, I don't know. It's. I, I'm not quite sure. I mean, you call me a social entrepreneur, and I quite like that idea, but... Um, but actually, I, th- I think I'd rather just call it entrepreneurship, because um, there are all there are, there are, there you can do a course um, on on entrepreneurship, and you might argue, what's the difference? Well, there, there isn't really any difference at all, except one is designed to make as much money as you can uh, for, share, for yourself and shareholders, and the other is designed. Um, to be sustained, to, to make, uh, to create businesses uh, that are sustainable, and um, and benefit society as well as uh, the individuals who work in it. But actually, the techniques or the approach, the notion of entrepreneurship applies to both equally. I don't, I don't really see, and I know why the term social entrepreneurship has been invented. It's to separate ourselves from uh, the notion of individual greed as a motivation for entrepreneurship. But I don't think it's necessary. I'd like to subvert what people think entrepreneurship is by just putting putting out ideas and organisations that are successful um, businesses, but deliver the triple bottom line, which is that they contribute to their communities measurably, they're positive to the environment, and uh, they are profitable. I really like that idea because, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations along these lines in the past, and to me... Um, in many ways, you know, social entrepreneurship or social enterprise, as they call it. I mean, it's it's the way that you would just want to see, that you know, the whole business sector it's actually business. behave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
I, I separate the term social entrepreneurship, which we've d- discussed, and I, I think it's largely unnecessary. I know why it's there, but it's largely unnecessary. But I think the separation benefits business or, or business as usual more than it does the notion of social entrepreneurs, in my view. I think on the social enterprise, there is, there's a difference. Um, and um, as chair of Social Enterprise UK, I'm very aware that um, social enterprises are not the same. I mean, the only difference between Turning Point, which is a social enterprise, and is that when I wake up in the morning, I'm legally obliged to improve, um, to ensure that Turning Point is safe, um, sustainable, financially and, and 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 hopefully growing if i work for if i woke up if i work for i woke up in the morning looked in the mirror i'd be legally responsible for long-term short-term shareholder value um making sure this is safe and hopefully growing um that that's that, that the only difference is that if i work for i would have a legal obligation to shareholders full stop period that would probably override everything else that i had a responsibility for so um I, I'm quite keen on promoting the notion of social enterprise as a as an alternative, well, not an alternative, actually, as the future of business. I think increasingly the notion of business as usual is seeming more and more absurd. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to issues, right? It's, it's, it's that wider sustainability, social... It's and just not sustainable. sustainable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just not sustainable. And the notion of trickle-down um, and wealth creating... There is this notion, I know, that... Um, Oxfam have produced these staggering statistics that show that one percent of the world own, you know, most of the wealth. Uh, and the response to that was being, well, actually, globally, um, over the last thirty years, the poor, we've shown a remarkable decrease in absolute poverty um, as a result of capitalism and wealth, which proves that the trickle-down theory works. Of course, all the people saying this are generally wealthy. You don't see poor people saying this. And of course, what they don't discuss is the gap. So poverty, um, you know, when they talk about absolute poverty, they're not really talking about the gap between rich and poor. They're not really talking about the Gini coefficient. What they're talking about is uh, what their notion of absolute poverty being somebody with no no clothes, no food, (laughs) and no shelter basically no means of getting it and they're saying well now now that you've got now that you've got a dollar a day or two dollars a day whereas before you had one dollar a day um, you can't be poor so it's okay to have somebody owning 90 percent of the wealth and indeed not paying tax and it's a ridiculous argument but it's one that's um, produced by those people who are quite comfortable with their uh, sometimes with their wealth um, and don't want to pay tax in response to people who are saying this is not sustainable and it isn't sustainable. Yeah, it just, it's that it's that that wider inequality in society that seems to be absolutely to be growing. And I speak of someone I've got nothing against wealth. I mean, most people listening to this podcast will be wealthy compared to most other people in the world. I have no problem with wealth, and I have no problem enjoying it. Um, I think there's a difference between wealth and greed. There's only so much. There's only so much you actually you actually need as an individual. I think that's well, you know, I suppose so. But you can, you know. <laughs> you can only live in one house at a time and generally drive one car at a time I'm, I'm quite interested in the psychology of wealth I'd like to understand it more well, it's an interesting idea for, um, for for academia to engage with it is well, I'd like yeah. to understand the psychology of people who have obscene amounts of money you know more money than they'll ever spend and they'll ever 
um, get through? What 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 is their thinking? How how do they relate to the world? What what are their views about the future of the planet? What what and what what motivates them to give to to keep a, what is it about? I'd just like to understand it. And what is what what do they consider their relationship with the rest of the world at? I'd like to understand it, and I'd like to understand not from a point of view of punishing them, but a genuinely educative experience. What, what is it? What is it about? What, what is that about? Because unless we do understand that, then we can't have a conversation about it. Really, it's just a slagging match, which doesn't get us anywhere. Yeah, and then therefore, how can you engage those people to to, to hmm. actually, you know, join the sort of sustainability debate or agenda? Really. Yeah, or not, as the case may be, but just understanding them would help. We, we're going to come back to some of those issues later uh, when we talk about um, social entrepreneurship and what and, and what that may, may or may not mm-hmm. involve. Um, but mm-hmm. let's let's talk a bit about you first, so our listeners can get a feel for you know who Victor Adebowale is. I mean, okay. tell us a, a bit about your life experience. Why why did you come into social enterprise, and you know, and sort of how you ended up coming to uh, the CEO of Turning Point. That would be a great start, I think. Oh, God. Um, That's a long story, but the shortened (laughs) version is... I mean, I don't know. Um, I'd like to tell you that um, I read all the books and and came to a reasoned and logical conclusion that my life was... But actually, I was just born with a a view that... uh, an innate, curious curiosity about the world. And, um, I mean... I was brought up fairly poor. Um, well, yeah, fairly poor. Um, and it, I don't know. Poverty poverty can fuel two notions. One is get rich or die, die trying, and the other is is it possible that the world could be slightly better by the actions that you take and the thoughts that you have and the ideas that you put out. And and the uh, the latter of those. Uh, yeah, I've always been interested in society, how it works, why it works, what the underlying dynamics are. Um, I started off. No, no, no. I actually started. Off, I have worked for the, in in commerce. I worked for for a bit. Um, I got fired for not selling a video recorder to my next door neighbour. <laughs> um, my manager caught me persuading them not to take out the five pound a week um, deal because I knew that that video recorder probably wouldn't be um, relevant in about three months. So I got fired. I guess that taught me something about really what I wanted to do. Purely selfish reasons, actually. I don't mind making money, but I didn't. I didn't. I kind of objected to the idea of making money for people I'm never going to meet um, and that I don't know and I never will know and don't really care that much about me. Um, it, it didn't make sense to me. I'd rather, if I was going to earn a salary, then I'd rather do it in a way that actually um, contributed to the communities in which I live, um, and which, and in which there was some transparency about where it ended up. Um, and that's been one of my um, that and the notion of the balloon debate. You know, if you're going to be in the balloon, it'd be a good idea to be doing something that the other people thought was socially useful if they if they felt they had to throw somebody out um so so that's been my sort of rather selfish <laughs> motivation really but i've worked in i worked for local government in housing um did lots of work on on um 
on empty homes and uh, bringing housing back into use. I worked a lot on setting up housing co-ops, and then I worked for housing associations. Then I worked in homelessness, youth homelessness, um, and then I, I worked in. Um, always kept up my interests in health and criminal justice. Um, I worked for a while for Centrepoint um, as chief exec there. And then Turning Point, which I've been for 17 years, it's a fascinating organisation because it does so many things. Um, it just seemed a natural fit between me and um, Turning Point. Tell us a little bit about Turning Point. Uh, what, what work uh, do you do through Turning Point and, and who do you sort of engage in helping society? Well, I'm the chief exec of an organisation which employs um, nearly 4,000 people in 200 locations in England and Wales. Um, we supported 77,000, I'm told, 77,787 people last year. Um, 13,000 people in mental health services, 63,000 in substance misuse, and 800 people in our learned disability services. Actually, now, tell a lie, we have 3,340 members of staff, as I count. Um, we... Um, uh, we about every half hour I'm told somebody leaves our substance misuse service for drug and alcohol um, it doesn't tell me how likely it is that they're going to come back though but that's another question um, we um, we also provide uh, primary care GP service for homeless people in London um, we employ doctors consultant psychiatrists nurses community workers social workers addiction specialists um, learn disability nurses. Uh, you know, it's a great place um, um, to work. We, we we are a social enterprise. Our turnover this year will be about 120 million. Uh, last week, last year, we had a very difficult. Well, we didn't have a difficult year. We made a decision to invest two point odd million pounds in digital um, in developing digital services because it's very hard to raise money when you're a big social enterprise, um, and so you have to make decisions about where you, that money's going to come from and luckily we've been profitable in the years before but not enough to um, uh, cover all the costs in new ideas um, and one of our new ideas is digital um, services or digital the mix of digital and human interfaces um, doing a lot of research on it but we had to spend money put our money where our mouth is eventually so we decided to have a deficit to fund that um, last year, which is which will show in the accounts, um, but of course it was a difficult decision to make in a environment where you know margins are shrinking, uh, cuts to services are very competitive. But it was the right decision because we did grow last year by about ten million quid, um, and um, we are set to keep growing. And that 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 digital investment is proving to be. Um, very successful in terms of reducing costs, but also delivering new kinds of services to our um, to clients, both new, old and new. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we talk at the start about the the fact that actually social enterprises is no different in many ways to traditional business, and you're still no. trying to drive a sustainable organisation. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, first of all, Turning Point kind of belies the myth that all all social enterprises are, are tiny local affairs. I mean, huge organisation with thousands of employees and a, and a high turnover. But actually, that that it's really interesting that you have to, you know, that those business decisions around where do you invest surplus yeah. back into the organisation to to drive scale and growth, um, yeah, are actually the same for you as they would be if if you were. Oh yeah, yeah, working they are. For that's, boots. Absolutely, that's what annoys me. And, uh, I, that's why I don't like the word 
not for profit. I mean, I think it's a, a misnomer. What we are is not for dividend. So, so what I don't have um, hanging over my head every month is a requirement to return 40% on, on, some, on some private equity investment or indeed return to shareholders. Now, some people say, well, that's, um, you know, because you don't have that pressure, somehow you're not as, as serious a business as uh, Boots. And I just think that's crap. Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Excuse me. It also um, explains the massive difference in largesse in terms of salaries and the opinions that people take seriously when they're thinking about social policy. You know, you'll see some um, banker on 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 the television opining about social policy, um, but the same um, uh, uh, BBC or whatever it is won't approach a. a um, a uh, chief executive of a charity, let alone a social enterprise, who actually provides services to thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, and that's their opinion on on matters of social policy or the economy, because of course business is taken more seriously, and that's the problem. That is a problem. It, you know, Turning Point is a business. It just has a different business model to Boots, but we are highly, we are very complicated as a business um, because we have three lines of. Um, um, at least three lines of business, major business that we're involved in. Um, we employ a lot of people. Um, in fact, we're bigger than a lot of businesses in this country. Um, and I, I see it as business. You know, we, <laughs> um, we, we, we do business. We just don't do greed and we don't do shareholder value first. Well, and I mean, that, that links in quite nicely because obviously you also have a role as corporate citizenship champion and trying to encourage corporates to, to have longer term sustainability, to focus on social impact and profit, um, look at how they can engage in community building and, and be more multi-stakeholder in their approaches. Mm. Um, I mean, I often see social, you know, social enterprise, as we said earlier, as that way to try and drive systemic change. So, you know, yeah. actually we want all businesses to be social in, you yeah. know, in the future. But, but how do you think we go about that in these initial stages? How do you grow, how do you drive that corporate citizenship agenda? Well, it's very difficult. I think the first thing you've got to do is recognise what it is and indeed what you're up against. Um, I think I, I think now most businesses most businesses recognise that they can't get away with. Uh, we've gone through three stages. I think the first was denial where a lot of business just didn't want to know, really. <laughs> it is like, what are you talking about? Um, I think it's not J.K. Galbraith, but some, uh, some economist, I can't remember his name, the business of businesses, business types, you know, red in tooth and claw, devil tame the hindmost. They don't even want to pay tax, you know. We, they should be able... Their, their view was, um, if we create employment, um, then we shouldn't have to pay tax. We can make contributions to charity. Um, that kind of person, that kind of business. That was They were just in denial. Then the second stage is um, is uh, was was the realization that that just wasn't sustainable, um, and that was um, and that was uh, accelerated by the banking crisis when the public basically thought, "Hang on a minute, <laughs> you know, not only has it, have, have we got these businesses that call themselves private, but when they got into trouble, re- required the public to bail them out. So how private are they?" But it costs us a trillion quid. It was described to me as the biggest bank robbery of, of, in the history of Western economics, and it was an inside job. And <laughs> the fact of the matter is that that, that shocked people. And if you look at the um, 
the public surveys of trust in business since the banking crisis have steadily gone down. I think now they're, they're, well, they're, well, they're under 50%, which is pretty shocking given the, given how the economy is coming. Um, that resulted in the second stage, which was a lot of businesses going, hang on a minute, we, we need to we need to think about this. <laughs> um, uh, uh, we, need, we need to at least uh, do some greenwashing. I mean, the, the fuel for the second stage wasn't just the banking crisis. It was also things like uh, the green movement. Um, we need to do some greenwashing. I remember going to a speech by Martin Sorrell, not known for his... Um, is uh, left-wing or indeed uh, social entrepreneurship. Um, and in fact, I read an article by him when he was announced he was he was earning 16 million a year, where he basically said, well, why should I pay tax? I've taken the risk of setting up a business. Um, we should have a situation where if somebody like me wants to contribute to society, we pay, we give to charities. I mean, that's basically his view. And astonishingly, this speech um, Martin Sorrell gave was all about the fact you cannot get away with greenwashing anymore because the public know, um, partly because of social media, partly because they're looking, um, and partly because um, there was evidence that people were making choices about what they purchased in terms of services and goods, um, not solely based on the benefits to their community and their family, but certainly any negative publicity around that would mean you lost customers. And that's Martin Sorrell saying that, speaking to an audience of thousands of of business people so i was kind of okay if he's saying it something shifted um and there was a lot of greenwashing um a lot of greenwashing and i think that increasingly became the way the third phase is much more systemic and that it's partly led by the fact that young people are they know who the man is and they're not buying it and if you look at the um growth of social enterprises and the numbers of young people that are setting them up, wanting to work with them, making choices about who they're working for, asking serious questions about the moral purpose, not just the financial purpose of the businesses they work for. Um, a lot of businesses are now realising that they have to shift from social responsibility, you know, uh, often referred to as the chairman's wife, um, uh, in a rather sexist, but I mean that is the term that I have heard used yeah. to a more fundamental look at what they're what they're about, you know, and and what contribution do they make? Now, having said that, I'm not saying the move the needles entirely moved in the direction that I would wish it to, because I think there's still a lot of people who think they can get away with it. So, what I've, one of the things I've noticed since becoming chair of Social Enterprise UK is the number of models of businesses that aren't social enterprises but would like everybody to think they are. So you get things like, you know, business for good, um, values-driven business. I mean, all sorts of things that mean we basically we're going to carry on um, pursuing uh, uh, short-term profit with, with, the most, with the most angry and uh, um, uh, ruthless uh, energy. But we're going to, but we're going to call ourselves something other because we know that people don't like that anymore. Now, I'm not saying all businesses are bad. That's certainly not the case at all. And some of the business for good stuff is very good indeed. But what I have noticed is a, is a desire and a rush to become something other than what than what they were or what they are in some cases, and that's a good thing, actually. Um, and it's interesting. I think that it's going to continue, and we. We haven't quite got to a tipping point yet because government is still off the pace on this. Governments still don't get it. And there are people who are in denial about the nature of commerce.
yeah. but we get in there. Uh, Sorry, that was a rather long answer, but there you go. No, no, but it's 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 one. I, I mean, I have to say, I agree with you. I think this, if you look at the corporate and the business sector, really, um, their long-term sustainability. I think, in the, if you look at how the market's shifting and how consumer attitudes are shifting, it, this should be a no-brainer to them. I mean, you know, you have to be it, it socially is. responsible. Yeah. That's true, but, but but the problem is, you see, if you've got a law, and it is in the law that states you have a fiduciary duty to improve short-term shareholder value, um, that is your business, then you are simply not in a position to do anything other than that. Otherwise, you will be sacked. In fact, not only you'll be sacked, you'll go to prison. So um, there are there are there are legal limitations you know as well as moral and philosophical ones and political ones that stop people from doing it i guess we'll have turned the needle when businesses are saying they want the law to change um if you look at somewhere like john lewis where they talk about sufficient profit i don't see the top echelons of of um of of that organization at food banks they earn very well thank you very much they don't have shareholders and it's a and it's a profitable company um, which has been sustained over hundreds of years, as opposed to some of our um, some of the big name brands. Actually, Woolworths is a good example. Uh, shareholders, you know, short term shareholder value, short term decision making, and you end up in crisis. Now, it, you know, I'm not saying that's the case for all businesses, but it's interesting that 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 um, nationwide. Uh, not only survived the banking crisis, but came out of it ever so slightly smelling of roses. And he's one of our thriving, um, large, trusted um, social enterprises. I mean, that's what it is. That's its business model. So I think there are, there's lots of evidence that, this, that, 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 that we can change an economy in a way of doing things. But there's a fundamental challenge, which is the law. Um, and yes, there are some people who just don't believe it. I mean, if you look at Enron, the finance director of Enron um, wrote a, a, a thesis in his MBA class in which he argued that if a company's selling something, knowing that it does harm to people, it should be allowed to do so because the, the, the responsibility for stopping them is not the company's, but the government's. The company's job is to make profit. Oh, okay, I didn't. Know. I mean, I, I thought you. I thought that, that, that it might have been based around some argument around free will, but uh, no, 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 it's, no, no. It's, it's just passing the responsibility. No, yeah, no, yeah. you read the book. I mean, the, you know, it's not even. And I've met people who believe that. You know, that all that social stuff. You know, nothing to do with us. My job, and they're right. My job is to increase the value of this company and its for its shareholders. End of. Yeah, no, it's 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 that kind of sustainability. Well, we've been talking about sustainability seems to be the, the phrase that keeps coming up about over sustainability mm. over this desire for a quick a quick book, so to speak. Mm. Um, mm. Which brings us into to an area that we that we chat we chat through on every podcast, um, and it's this idea, a little bit tongue in cheek, but can a social entrepreneur own and drive a Ferrari, Lamborghini? Hell yeah. <laughs> don't even have to hesitate about that. One of the problems with, with social entrepreneurship is the notion, it's a bit like um, uh, being green or being caring for the planet, is the notion uh, that it's that it's a miserable life, you know, that you have to give up enjoying um, uh, fast cars, if that's what you're into, or decent music, or, you know, having a beer. I mean, it's a ridiculous notion. And um, 
you might qualify that question. You know, there are now Ferraris that um, uh, uh, run on electricity. So, you know, can a social entrepreneur? Well, if the triple bottom line applies, that social entrepreneur ought to drive a, a Ferrari, which is at least green. But it seems to me that, um, I mean, I drive a car. Um, it's it's um, fuel injected. Um, it it does have a drinking problem akin to George Best. I don't. <laughs> it's not a Ferrari, by the way. It's about 15 years old. But I enjoy driving. And the fact of the matter is, I don't feel guilty about that. Um, my, some of my friends who are um, social entrepreneurs in the green industry uh, complain about it. And I say, well, where did you spend your holiday last year? And they went, well, I went to Mexico. So one flight to Mexico. <laughs> Basically, I could run my car engine all year. Oh. I would contribute less CO2 to the... <laughs> Than their one flight to um, to Brazil, so I think we we just need to. I'm cool with it. I've got no problem with social entrepreneurs being wealthy. I've got as long as they pay their taxes. I've got no problem with social entrepreneurs living well and, and providing for themselves and their family. There's no reason why that shouldn't be the case. It's just you have to contribute positively to society while doing so. It's not it's not a difficult concept to get your head around, in yeah. my view. Yeah, I guess it's just that yeah, it's that sustainability thing. It's good to hear. I mean, I, I I actually don't hear really any social entrepreneur that I speak to anyway say say anything different. Everybody always has the answer like, yeah, if you want to, why not? Yeah, if you want to, um, why not? I don't wrong with that. Uh, and on the car front, of course, you look at you look at a Tesla. I mean, if you buy the, the top of the range Tesla, it's it's quicker than a Ferrari actually. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, um, actually, um, the Tesla is a fantastic car. Um, uh, I, you know, I'd like to be able to afford one because yes. you can. You can, and they look great. I mean, they look cool, and they're fast, and they've got all the bits and pieces. I mean, that is a that that is the future that I'd like to grow up in. One in which actually we, we all benefit from just being smart, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, uh, thank thank you very much for that first part, Victor. Um, so, listeners, uh, Victor's telling us that you know not for profit is a misnomer. Sustainability is key, and that, uh, you know youth and the younger generations can help drive social innovation. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Please contact us on social media, on Twitter at, at Institute SII uh, and on LinkedIn at www.instituteforsocialinnovationandimpact.co.uk. We'll be back shortly after the break to discuss a topical issue of the day. Okay, welcome back listeners. So the second half of the podcast, as you know by now, is where we get to talk um, about a topical issue of the day. Uh, and with Victor today, we're going to be talking about Carillion. So all of those, for those of you that have been reading the news, I'm sure you'll be aware, Carillion, large private sector provider of public services and public works programs, has collapsed into administration. At the time, uh, well, at the time of its collapse, it uh, was taking a, just under £2 billion a year in public funding runs prisons, schools, hospitals, um, and it's really raised the debate in the media around, you know, privatisation versus nationalisation. Now, Victor, I, I talked to you about this off-air. I, I don't really want to get into the politics of, of what's happened with Carillion no. itself. Um, mm-hmm. that everyone's talking about privatisation versus nationalisation. Nobody's actually talking about the role of the third sector in public service delivery and how we actually encourage social value in public service contracts. Mm. Um, uh, to me, that seems a really important debate that is, is, getting, is getting missed by the left and the right in this. Um, so my first question to you is, you know, what do you see as the role of the third sector in public service delivery and public mm. works programmes? Mm, mm. Well, I mean, just to say that I set up an organisation, I got so frustrated with this debate or the lack of debate um, because the fundamental 
problem isn't about third sector or public sector or even private sector. The fundamental issue is what is the vision for the future of our public services? You know, we've had a model of public service delivery that's been um, uh, that started in the post-war. You know, and it's now 2018, and nobody, there hasn't been a politician for a long time, well, probably since the post-war, that's had the guts. Well, the last one was Thatcher, actually, to have a, a vision about the future of public services. I mean, Thatcher's vision was effectively no public services, you know, <laughs> pri- privatised a lot. Um, but it was a vision, and, and people bought into it, you know. But we haven't had a credible vision for the future of services, um, public service for some time. And I set up an organisation called Collaborate because I think the future of public services lies in a model of collaboration, actually, between public, private and not-for-profit um, and an inf- a policy infrastructure that encourages and supports that. Um, I think the third sector could play a much larger role, um, but it's hampered by its own um, how can I put it? Its own lack of confidence. Mm. Um, certainly, I've experienced it when I when I um, uh, when I when I turned Turning Point into a social enterprise and got rid of the fundraising department, etc. There was a lot of and, and when I started saying to our uh, to commissioners and uh, local authorities and health um, authorities and health institutions that we were going to charge um, the full cost for our services because we had to make a profit. There was outrage, and there still is outrage in some circles. The Guardian refused to call us a social enterprise. They kept referring to us as a as a charity. Um, I know we're registered with the Charity Commission, but it's very difficult to unregister, to be honest. Um, and we we had, and we still get, you know, side remarks, comments, um, articles written, um, having a go at us because we, because we 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 um, we're a social enterprise, and and. And a lot of small charities and collections of small charities um, really going for Turning Point. You know, we still get them. There's still these conspiracy theories that were all that were a branch of the CIA or something. <laughs> and, and 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 it's all nonsense. And there's a kind of romance around uh, the third sector, which um, and there was a similar romance around the social enterprise centre. I remember debating with people who whose view was you could only be a social enterprise if you were small. You know, if you were under 15 people and all that stuff that. Um, that you that um, you know the, the, the only way you could do provide the kind of services that Turning Point provides is if you had your hand out to the public and fundraising and all this stuff and it's just so boring and wrong and debilitating um, of the third sector's potential um, to to deliver and indeed uh, the, the term third sector invented by Tony Blair. And then undermined by him slowly over the, over the years. It was a good thing because it defined, in some ways, the possible future of a new kind of organisation that could deliver public services um, in competition, um, but with a business model that returned um, surplus into those services and in a transparent way, so people could see what was happening to taxpayers' money. Um, and I'm intrigued, actually, by some of the recent noises about things like salaries at the top of organisations um, in the press, because often they 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 have this notion that if you're if you're an outsourcing company um, that who whose income 
is derived from public's your yours and mine taxpayers money you know literally you're you're delivering services that were delivered by by the public services but now delivered by i don't know circo or whatever somehow the people who who run those organizations it's all right for them to earn massive bonuses massive salaries but if you're doing it in a third sector perspective where you're delivering, in some cases, exactly the same services, actually. I mean, the private sector companies do all the things that Turning Point does. Um, but if you're running a complex, not-for-dividend service, somehow you ought to be walking around in a, in a holy string vest, uh, living in a tent, and, uh, and, and eating quinoa. You know, this is, this is nonsense. Um, and it's designed to, I, in my view, shift the public's anger away from some of the greed and and, and outrageous practice of some of the um, for for dividend businesses um, away from those businesses towards people who are actually doing the right thing but don't but don't have the confidence and the resources to fight back. Um, that's and the second thing it's doing is that it it it's, it it muddies the waters. It, it creates a confusion in the argument, which is fundamentally about what is the best and most effective business model for providing people with with public services. And one more thing before I shut up. Um, the notion of public services is, I think, um, open to question. As we found with the banking crisis, what is a public service isn't what it was in 1947. You try surviving without a bank account or access to the internet, um, or even access to a supermarket these days, you can't. And so it begs the question, what is a public service? Um, and that, in my view, is that we need to be talking about services to the public. We need to be talking about the obligations that those services have to the public because we know when those services go wrong, the public has to step in. So there's a whole issue. There's a whole, um, there's a whole uh, challenge, I think, for public policy about what what is a public service what do we expect from public services the future of services to the public as a different notion of public service and the balance between um, for dividend not for dividend and public service infrastructure necessary to deliver large-scale um, uh, services that we all need i mean that, that that idea of what is a public service is a really interesting question and i think you know often sometimes when I look at this debate I really feel that people are putting the cart before the horse and that that what everybody focuses on isn't about what is the what is a public service or what should it be seeking to do which to me is delivering positive social value for the community mm. in whatever guise that might be um, mm. everybody seems to get lost in talking about models and, and I mean this happens in social enterprise um, sector as well in you know practitioners and academic debate everybody seems mm. to focus on models rather than like look at the core yeah, of this is a, is a desire to yeah to have a social exactly. purpose and exactly what is our intention here is is the question that we need to be that we need to be asking what is the intention of services to the public and then you work back from there what are the processes necessary to meet that intention and, and in fact actually of course that the, the reality is that we'd probably see a very hybrid approach where you'll have some private sector provision, some third sector provision and some public sector provision. Um, I mean, I, I would suggest, or even partnerships across across those sectors. I agree. I mean, I totally agree. What, what gets in the way is the kind of, um, how can I put it, the kind of uh, tribal sometimes, but a, a blinkered 
a view of one form or another. So there is a view, and you know, some some have, the old private sector provision is somehow evil. That the private sector, by definition, is is a is a blight on the landscape of of human economy. You know, kind of thing, which is clearly nonsense. Some of the most generous, intelligent, forward-thinking people I've met run private sector organisations that are for dividend. You know, and some of the most nasty undermining you know self-interested um, individuals and running charities you know <laughs> um, running a charity doesn't provide you with a halo um, similarly you know so the notion that that all private is bad and public it just doesn't make sense so we need we need a much more intention driven debate about services to the public going forward um, and we need to create new models of partnership collaboration to deliver those services with clear rules you know about what happens when things go wrong and and what happens when um and how and how the public sector and the political um class should manage the market or should or should put structures in on behalf of the, of the taxpayer so the taxpayer doesn't get ripped off because in a lot of cases, what you've got, you know, what we had in the banking crisis was basically the the the, the murder of moral hazard. <laughs> yeah, that's a, um, a nice way of putting it. Actually, I think um, we, we saw, yeah, we sort of basically saw people not having to be responsible for their own actions. At the end basically, of the day. yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 you know, and I think you know, you mentioned Carillion, and and um, the shame of of it is that you know. It's not a political point, but I think the 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 gradient of of government um, discourse, not just this government, previous governments as well, has been in favour of of four dividend organisations. The presumption being that somehow their use of capital is more efficient than organisations like mine. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. In fact, if you look at the Public Accounts Committee's review of outsourcing, they'll tell you that it's decidedly dodgy in terms of value for money. And yet, we have companies that, you know, provide public services, but um, offshore the tax. <laughs> I mean, that, doesn't that make sense there? It doesn't make no sense to me whatsoever. No, um, they, they shouldn't be allowed to, to, to compete yeah. for those services unless they're going to yeah. sit within the normal tax regime. Absolutely. I don't think that makes you a socialist. I think that just makes you sense a rational person. Why would you want to give... So, and it, part of the problem is that the short, there's two kinds of short-termism going on. One is the short-term uh, requirement to cut costs on the public purse, even though... You don't actually save any money in the long term, and the other is the short term of the of um, the short term requirements of shareholders, um, and uh, and and the markets. So you know we've got two quite toxic uh, uh, mixtures there, um, but they're not. It's not driving long term thinking, and it's not driving value for people or value for money debate. And one of the areas that I've surprised perhaps hasn't hasn't also been brought up in this area i did some research on this a few years ago and in fact if uh, we, we we obviously we, the university launched it with collaborate if you remember victor on public yeah. service mutuals and spin yes. outs 
Yeah. Um, down at the South Bank, I think it was 2015. Or, yeah, I mm. think it was 2015. Um, mm. Uh, so this idea of public service mutuals, I'm amazed that that hasn't come up more in looking, you know, now that we're looking at new models of public service delivery, where you're almost mm. taking a third sector social enterprise ownership model to public service delivery, but one that still seems to retain the ownership of the of the public service staff that are within it, uh, mm. and which you're able to have still contractual control from a local authority. Um, mm. Well, it's quite difficult. I mean, I think one of the problems I've experienced, and I'll be blunt about this, is that... Um, the thing about social enterprises I've realised is that the the left love the social but hate the enterprise. The right love the enterprise but le- hate the social. And so one of the one of the one of the challenges we have is, is are the unions um, who who see any some unions not all of them see anything that isn't an in my view an old fashioned model of public ownership. Um, as somehow um, anathema, you know, uh, and that's been a problem. And I think we need a much stronger relationship with the unions. who are still quite powerful, actually. Not, not, and I think that's not a bad thing, actually. But I think we need to bring them on board um, in thinking about these new models. Firstly, secondly, there's not been a lot of encouragement, I think, by this government or, or the last government beyond the statements to actually do it. Um, partly because you, it involves a lot of change. Um, change kicks up a lot of controversy. Uh, uh, ministers are generally, in my view, risk-averse. Um, so they'll rather plump for the status quo, take the risk of pushing change. Um, and there's been issues about the contracting arrangements. So I was involved in a case I won't go into where um, a social, uh, 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 such a public mutual had been had been set up. It was a social enterprise, worked really well, delivered excellent services, um, and then the tender went out uh, for that contract went out, and it was won by a private sector organisation who had no experience whatsoever in the delivery of those services, but could afford the kinds of lawyers and advisors that frightened them death out of the commissioner, such that they, the the um, incumbents just couldn't compete. So there's a lot we have to do to create an environment in which those kinds of structures succeed. Um, And I am slowly coming to the view that the tendering of public services um, ought to be skewed in such a way that not-for-dividend organisations have an advantage over for-dividend organisations. That's not to say that for-dividend organisations shouldn't be allowed to um, compete, because I think they should, but I just think we should err on retaining um, profit in the business and in the, and in the, in the society, in the public purse, um, rather than the opposite, which I guess would have been a consequence of the Social Value Act if it had had some teeth. Yeah, I mean, that was part Which of the problem, wasn't it? <laughs> it only requires the public body to consider social value. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't push it in. I, mean, I, think, it, I yeah. think it did have more teeth, but it, it got watered down, didn't it? Oh, it did. No, I mean, I, I've often house. said it, it was a triumph um, for the Social Enterprise UK and, and Peter Holbrook in particular in getting it through. But I often said that it was the, it was the, fastest, the, the, the fastest bill to pass through both houses. Um, and that always makes me suspicious. <laughs> um, you know, if something passes through your body that fast, it's usually you know. <laughs> and and, and uh, I just I just thought, mm, um, and I've been proven right. I think that it was the teeth were extracted as it as it passed through both houses until it was 
pretty much meaningless. And and it was a very clever bill because if the teeth were put back in, um, it would have changed landscape quite significantly. If it was made a legal duty, then a lot of the contracts that have gone to four dividend organisations that have proven to be badly run and amoral at best and immoral at, at worst um, uh, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have happened because they, couldn't, they wouldn't have been able to prove social value. Yeah, and I, and I heard that, um, I did hear on the grapevine that, that there, were, there was, it was being looked at in Parliament to, to revisit the Social Value Act, to give it those review, teeth. There is a review. Um, social Enterprise UK um, is leading that review, and Peter's doing some really strong work in, in, in um, getting there. I think um, it will be a really key achievement if we can pull it off. My concern is... Um, again, it's, you know that the the, 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 power, the forces of conservatism, small C, and the forces of, of private capital are very powerful in this country. Um, they, you know, they see um, uh, social enterprise as a threat, you know, to the sort of um, the pursuit of profit at all costs. You know, they see it as a real threat, as a as a as almost in a sort of communist plot or something. Um, uh, they will, and, and there are people that will rail against it. I mean, I think it's interesting that social enterprise isn't in the uh, Department of Business. Yeah. <laughs> it's, no, it's not the business minister. The Department of of, uh, of uh, Culture, Media, and Sport. <laughs> so what we so we have, you know, the co-op group, Nationwide, John Lewis. Uh, all big, successful, complex commercial businesses effectively accountable to the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Yeah. Which tells you something. And, 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 but of course, it used to, the office, the office of Third Sector used to be based in the Cabinet Office, didn't it? So there was a little yeah. bit more of a, a focus there. And I think with the Social but, Value Act as well, we've seen that uh, perhaps two of the biggest champions that, uh, you know, who originally in the Commons, who originally put it forward, Chris White and Hazel Blears, are no longer yes. in the Commons. Um, yes, well, I mean, so. I know Hazel well, and uh, we have been doing some work with Chris White. In fact, he wrote a report for Social Enterprise UK recently. Um, and Hazel Blears is now chair of um, social finance. Um, uh, but I think I think the problem, the problem is that this in government is that social enterprise needs to be in business. It needs to be in biz. You know, I know it sounds like a minor thing, but it, it doesn't need to be in the cabinet office. It shouldn't be in the office for civil society because I've always thought, you know, should we have an office for uncivil society then? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, if we have a civil society, you know, the office for civil society is the government, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, so I don't I don't get that. And it sends a rather weird message, I think. Um, so, but business, the biz, we ought to be, we're businesses, and we ought to be in the considered as when they think about the industrial strategy, when they think about Brexit, gold helpers, when they think about, you know, um, uh, fiscal policy, when they think about business taxation, we should be part of those considerations. And the fact that we're not says a lot. Yeah. You know, it says a lot that me, that me and me have to fight to be considered, uh, to get the consider social enterprise as part of their industrial strategy. I mean, I think that's profoundly worrying. Yeah. Uh, and it says a lot about who influences government policy. You know, and after sitting in the House of Lords on a Thursday afternoon, have a, have a look at who's um, having dining with whom to know, you know, um, uh, we don't have that kind of clout. So there's a, there's a way to go. And um, the, we got the, you know, but we did get the Prime Minister to talk about social enterprise. 
um, this year. Um, she talked about us in the same sentence as charities, which I would rather she didn't, but at least she acknowledged that there is this thing and it has uh, a part to play in the delivery of a positive economy. But we've got a long way to go. A long way to go. On both the left and the right. I mean, the, the left are just as guilty of a lack of imagination. Yeah, we perhaps need a well. We need that. We need that sort of cross-party, all-party, uh, common sense approach to some of this. Maybe might be I there. think so. I mean, I don't. I don't really. I mean, I think we need the Labour, the, the Labour Party, to, to to see social enterprise as the future of commerce. We need the Conservative Party to do the same, um, and we need. We don't need them to abandon um, uh, for for dividend business. We just need them to acknowledge the presence of social enterprise. That's all. Because the social enterprise idea will do the rest. Um, and the Lib Dems um, already acknowledge social enterprise. But, uh, you know, it's, I don't think we need a cross-party consensus. I think we just need um, we just need the leaders of p- these parties to, um, to smell the coffee. <laughs> you know, because... Yeah. Um, and, and, to, and to not be so afraid. This notion of... Um, because I can imagine the conversation, uh, I don't know whether this happened, but I can imagine the conversation, you know, about where social enterprise should sit and somebody going, well, we don't want to be seen to be anti-business. You know, we don't want to be seen to be anti-business. So if we're going to have a business department, it's all about for dividend and, you know, that's the definition of business. It's crap. But you can see it, this fear of being seen as anti-business, driving all sorts of bizarre notion. Um, but the truth is, Social enterprise is a, is a, it contributes nearly thirty billion to the British economy. It employs uh, people. It's the fastest growing sector of the economy. It employs. Um, it, it thrives in in the poorest areas of the country and employs employs poor people. It employs more women, more disabled people, more members of minority ethnic communities um, than any other type of business. Well, why wouldn't you want to support it? Why wouldn't you want to see it as a as, as something you you want to invest political capital in, and, and uh, why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, the answer is because you're frightened. Yeah, it's it's it, it seems a it seems a no brainer to me as well. But um, it's it's just it's getting. I suppose it's getting that message across. We've reached the end of our, our time, Victor, I'm afraid. But what I want to That's say great. is, you know, thank you so much for coming on Talking Impact. It's been a real thank you. pleasure to, to host you and thank to hear you. your opinions. Thank you for giving me a chance to gob off. It's, 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 quite, <laughs> quite, uh, it's quite rare, but thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable. Good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Cheers, Victor. So there you go, listeners. Um, Victor is talking to us about the, the future uh, of the sector, the future of the social enterprise sector and how we drive sustainability in our economy focused on social value the need for long-term thinking and the need for partnerships and collaborations both politically and organizationally across the different sectors of the economy to drive social value please as ever engage with us on social media if you have any comments or questions about the podcast today or any other topics that we've discussed on previous podcasts you can contact us on twitter at at institute sii and also on linkedin at www.instituteforsocialinnovationandimpact.co.uk please join us for our next episode of talking impacts we'll be talking to another leading social entrepreneur in the meantime take care cheers thanks for listening to the talking impact podcast brought to you by the institute for social innovation and impact If you have any questions about the content discussed in this podcast, please email isii at northampton.ac.uk. For more information on the Institute's work, 
visit northampton.ac.uk forward slash research. You've been listening to a Jump Media Group production. Talk to us at wejumphire.co.uk.